Well, let's go ahead. Uh, I'm filling in for Chris Scruggs today, and he said, Ron, I've left you, and I'm, I'll be teaching next Sunday as well. He said, I've left you the two toughest uh, lessons in his book on wisdom literature. We're doing a thing on wisdom literature, and so we're going to be rooted in the book of Job today. And, uh, but first of all, let me pray and open us up. And then I'm going to ask the question Chris has been asking, where have you seen God at work in your life this past week? So let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this Lord's Day, uh, for the freedom we have to worship. We thank you for the way your hand has been on this congregation for over 175 years. And we thank you for this beautiful day. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Uh, we pray that somehow your hand would move and make a way to bring peace and reconciliation there. And we pray for our own country, Lord, as we face many trials and tribulations, and we pray that you would uh, see fit to turn our nation around back toward you. And I pray that you would pour through me the gift of teaching today that uh, we all might leave here built up in Christ. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, where has anyone seen God at work in your life or the life of someone else this past week? Anybody want to share? So you all have been spiritually blind this week. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, I was, I was in one of the most exciting meetings. I'm not a... I believe John 3.16 really read in the original Greek, for God so loved the world that he didn't send a committee. Um, so I don't like being on committees, but I'm on what's called a church planting committee here, and that's one of my passions. And we had such an exciting meeting this past week. I mean, it was obvious God's at work in this church We've got all kinds of dreams of planting churches all over the world and around San Antonio. And uh, so God's mightily at work. Anybody else? Where have you seen God in your life this past week? Yeah, my predecessor, Clayton Bell, Highland Park, his son, his oldest son, Ben, has been in the hospital over two months on a uh, respirator. I mean, the, the chances of surviving on a respirator are almost nil now. He's turning around, and looks like he's going to make it. And also with Betty and Some of our friends in Dallas... So, okay, um, well, we're going to talk about suffering today. You know, we see suffering every day on the news, Ukraine, uh, police getting shot in the streets, all kinds of stuff. And that's one of the toughest questions um, for people of faith. How, how does or why does God allow uh, suffering? But I want to do something before we get into that. I just want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we're, we're studying wisdom literature. And um, 
yesterday, I, I use the Our Daily Bread devotional every day. It has a Bible reading calendar with it. it. takes me through the entire Bible in a year, but then it gives me a particular text to look at every day. And yesterday's, I want you to listen to this and see if this guy was wise. It says, Abel Mutai, a Kenyan runner competing in a grueling international cross-country race, was mere yards from victory, his lead secure. Confused by the course's signage and thinking he'd already crossed the finish line, however, Mutai stopped short. The Spanish runner in second place, Ivan Fernandez Anaya, saw Mutai's mistake. Rather than take advantage and bolt past for the win, however, he caught up to Mutai, put out his arm, and guided Mutai forward to a gold medal. When reporters asked Anaya why he purposefully lost the race, he insisted that Mutai deserved the win, not him. Quote, what would be the merit of my victory? What would be the honor of that medal? What would my mom think of that? As one reporter put it, Anaya chose honesty over victory. Proverbs says that those who desire to live honestly, who want their lives to display faithfulness and authenticity, make choices based on what's true rather than what's expedient. The integrity of the upright guides them. That's Proverbs 11, verse 3. So was this Spanish runner wise or was he stupid? I mean, he could have gotten the gold medal in this international race. And it doesn't say whether he was a believer or not, but I have a hunch he probably was. To me, that really personifies what a wise, he made a wise decision. Um, he knows the other guy had won the race just because he got confused. He didn't deserve to you know, lose because of that. So I just thought that was interesting. He, he's living a wise life. And you know, when you look at scripture, I believe scripture holds in balance, two important things, and they're the two things that have influenced the polity of the Presbyterian Church and thus the polity of the United States of America, our constitutional federal republic. And the two things, you see this all through scripture, are freedom and form. And by form, I mean structure, and you know, Paul taught on the Ten Commandments. That's one of the forms that we place around our faith. Um, and, you know, we emphasize in the United States freedom, but we're not totally free. And you don't really want to be totally free. Have you ever th thought about it? I like to use the illustration of a, of a kite. Let's say you're on a mission to be totally free and you want everything else to be totally free. And you see a guy flying a kite and you go, oh, that kite is not free. It's tethered on that string. So you run over there with a knife and go, and you free the kite. Now it's totally free, right? Is it? In one sense, yes. But it's totally at the mercy of the wind. It's, it, can, it can no longer really be a kite. It's just blown by the wind and smashed to the ground. And so uh, that cord or string is sort of the, the form or the structure. Total freedom, if you go this way, without form, leads to chaos. But then on the other hand, form, structure, 
If you go the other way, all form, structure, and no freedom, that produces tyranny. And so the Bible's always talking about a balance between being free and yet under the authority of Scripture and the, the Word of God. And that's not an always easy uh, balance to find sometimes. We're always wanting to trip or tip to one side or the other. In churches, you'll see, you know, uh, new churches, particularly with uh, young people, we don't want any structure, or we just, the Holy Spirit's just going to guide us, and we're just going to meet, and, and uh, <laughs> it's all freedom. Uh, pretty soon it turns into chaos. You know, with, without form, it, they become fanatics. Well, I remember in my church in Baltimore, we started a contemporary service. We didn't know what we were doing, but there were all these young people saying, we don't want all that liturgy, and, and we're just going to show up, and the Holy Spirit's going to move us. Well, over the years, that thing, pretty soon, the thing started growing, and people started bringing their children, and the babies were crying, and so all of a sudden, we had to get structured. And our worship team, I'd sit there embarrassed, because they knew how to start a song, but they didn't know how to stop. And they were looking at each other, and so they figured out, you know, we really need to practice, and it, it became structured in a healthy way. Uh, and the thing really took off. It was our largest service. At 8.30 in the morning, it was our largest service. And uh, so you you got to have form. Um, but too much form, that's, that's the mainline churches in America. They've lost any freedom of faith, and it's all structure and mechanics. That's one of the reasons we left our former denomination. It was just all structure with little... Uh, for, we had no freedom to do a lot of things here at First Press. Now in Eco, we are free to do whatever the Lord's calling us. But so in your own life, think of, you know, you want to be under the Word of God, under the structures. And if you're a member of this church, you took a vow to be under the authority of the session. You're actually accountable. Um, and so we, we, we check each other, and, and hopefully that produces a healthy. Thing. And that's part of being wise, living a wise life. Now, Chris, um, in this section, um, you know, he's going to talk about suffering, and he focuses in on the, the book of Job. But, you know, uh, an influential book I read, gosh, 30-some years ago, was The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck, who, between writing his first book and his second book, becomes a Christian. It's really interesting. If you've never read his book, People of the Lie, you need to read that because the introduction is all about how he becomes a Christian while he's writing The Road Less Traveled. But he's got this classical line that begins the book. Life is difficult. And I think we'd all affirm that. Um, you know, we talk about the only certainties in life being death and taxes. But I'd say you need to add a third thing, and that's suffering. Um, if you live long enough, believe me, you are going to suffer. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world after the fall. In the fall, everything is broken to some extent. Not totally destroyed, but broken. You know, they talk about this pandemic and the, the level of mental illness is going up. Well, I got news for you. We were all, all 100% mentally ill before the pandemic to some extent. 
Because everything about us fell, our bodies, our spirits, and our minds. And um, so we live in this broken world. And if you live amidst brokenness, that means things don't always work right. And when they don't work right, somebody suffers because of that. So we have crime, sin, all that has produced untold suffering. We just finished the most... uh, awful, bloody century, over the 20th century, more people died of suffering and uh, genocides and everything else than any other century in the history of the world. So in the 21st century, it's not looking much better. Just look at our, our you know, what Putin's doing in Ukraine. All kinds of, of, of suffering. So um, here we live in this broken world and suffering. It's almost like suffering is woven into the very fabric of the universe now after the fall. John Piper, who's a pretty good Reformed theologian, and uh, I had him come to Dallas, my church, once and do a lecture on, to our church staff on how to work on a church staff and remain a Christian. And um, it's pretty tough. <laughs> and Piper has this great quote. He says, the only good pastor is a broken pastor. Now, I think that's true of being a Christian in general. The only good Christian is a broken Christian. Um, You know people in your own life who've been broken, and they're the ones who are compassionate and wise, and they seem to have a a savvy for navigating life that the person who's had everything go right doesn't seem to have. So uh, brokenness and suffering seems to make us more mature in Christ. My mentor in seminary, Dr. John Leith at Union Seminary in Richmond, I remember he used to look at us and say, gentlemen, you're never going to be a good pastor until you look into the abyss. And I remember sitting there thinking, I don't want to look into the abyss. I'll just skim along the surface as a pastor. I'd be fine with it. And he used to say, apparently God cannot or will not snap his fingers and make mature Christians. Instead, he places us in the crucible of this world where we are ground and broken, and it's through that that we become mature. So, right away we see that suffering is real, but it's also something that's been redeemed by God. God actually uses it to mold and shape you and me more toward the mind and the likeness of Christ. Um, The book of Job, I want to make a few comments about that. We know for sure that the oldest book in the Bible is Job. That's the first book of the canonical scriptures. Now, if you believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God from cover to cover, as I do, then that's, that got me thinking, huh. So, the first book that God inspires is Job. What does that mean? I think it means this, that when it comes to authentic faith in Jesus Christ, the front door of that faith is suffering. You've got to get that in place before you'll understand the rest of it. Usually, you know, we want to bring people to Christ, then afterwards we tell, oh, by the way, 
it's going to make your life tougher. We're afraid if we lead with that, they, they won't come to Christ. And yet, I think God is saying, no, you've you got to deal with suffering right at the front door. And you know, the, um, the worst, well, one of the worst, maybe it's the worst heresy out there. It's being promulgated in, by the largest church in America just three hours to the east of here in Houston. And it's being shipped all over the world. And I used to travel all over the world and encounter this in majority world nations in the church there. It's called prosperity theology. This idea that if you and I are just faithful enough, love Jesus enough, and live wisely enough, get our lives balanced and follow the word of God, faithfully go and do whatever Jesus is telling us to do and go, then we'll probably skip a lot of the suffering in life. I was telling Chris last week, I said, you know, my default mode, I know that's false, but my default mode is, I just told you, I read through the Bible every year. I have a quiet time every day. I never miss. I don't say that to brag any more than, hey, I breathe every day. I eat three meals a day. I found that's, I couldn't make it through life. I look forward to it. But I have to confess to you, down deep inside, in my brokenness, in my sinfulness, down there I'm going, Lord, you know, are you watching my faithfulness? And, you know, maybe God's going to go, ah, Ron's not going to get cancer. Nope, because he's so faithful. No, it doesn't matter how faithful you are in following. Christians, when you follow Christ, you're not given a, a you know, Superman suit that, you know, we're brokenness and tragedy and disease. You're immune to those things. No. Think about it. What, what if that was true? The whole world would soon take notice. Hey, everybody knows a Christian doesn't have any problems. They never get sick. We'd have to build 18 additions onto this church. People would be flooding in here, but for all the wrong reasons. The book of Job, you know, we talk about the patience of Job. That's a misnomer. Patience is when, you know, the, the line at the drive-thru line at Starbucks is long and you're having to wait on your frappe. No, it's the long suffering of Job. And here we have at the front door of the faith um, this man, and, he's, and it says he's the most righteous man walking the planet. So if anybody has a quiet time and reading through the Bible, it's Job. And if anybody's faithfully following God, Job is the most faithful. And yet he literally loses everything except his life. He has his family. His children are killed. All of his cattle and camels and everything stolen. Then he gets all kinds of diseases to the point where he wants to die. And then God never answers his question. Why is all this happening to me? God says, just get it up. I'm in charge and trust me. And Job eventually does that. And that's kind of the paradigm for us. Because we're not going to get an answer to the why question of, of suffering. Why is this happening to me? Um, you may be wondering, do I have any qualifications to be even teaching this? I don't want to you know, pull out my martyr card to get it punched. But I've walked away from the grave of a child. I've gone through cancer and a stroke with a child. 
Uh, courtesy of the NCAA, I have eight orthopedic surgeries and 11 broken bones. So I, I know pain, uh, I don't like it. And through our worst tragedies, I was just hanging on barely uh, to my faith. I remember at our daughter's graveside service in Memphis, Lewis and the pastor of Second Pres, uh, Dick DeWitt, uh, were doing the graveside. And I remember they lowered the casket in the ground and I, I've never had trouble believing. I've, you know, faith's a gift uh, and I've always had a great faith. Not because I'm special, it's just I don't know why God gave it to me. I've never struggled. I was a scientist before going into the pastoral ministry. I never struggled with, uh, I never saw discrepancies between science and faith. In fact, the more I was an electron microscopist and the more I got into the universe of the single cell, I began to see God's fingerprints all over this. But I remember that day, all of a sudden, unbelief seemed to weigh as heavy as belief. And it shocked and scared me because I was thinking, wait a minute, my career is a pastor, and what if I don't have any faith anymore? Now, there are a lot of pastors that don't have faith. I know some of them personally. But I didn't want to be one of those. And so, but then it, 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 God brought me back, and I was okay. But um, so suffering is at the front door of our faith, and we need to, to deal with it right there. Um, but this prosperity theology is just heresy. The book of Job just slays that right at the front door. Um, Jesus knew nothing of, of, of uh, prosperity theology. And I can prove that to you. Because if you look at what Jesus says, he promises us three things. One is his presence in our lives. And he will be with us forever. Number two is eternal life with him and his fulfilled kingdom. And the third thing he promises us, if we're faithful in following him, is suffering. When he says, take up your cross and follow me, what is a cross for? It's not a piece of jewelry at James Avery, although I have one around my neck. But it's a Roman instrument of humiliating, agonizing, execution, suffering par excellence. I preached a sermon once in Dallas called The Search for the Balsa Wood Cross. And we all, I wanted to, you know, we all like a light cross. And you know, um, and Jesus is saying, and he says, come, take up your cross and follow me. I dare you to track Jesus through the Gospels and look where he's going. 99% of the time, he's heading toward brokenness and suffering and pain. I don't, my natural default is not to go there. But if you follow Christ, and he says, you know, blessed on the right road are you if men persecute you on account of my namesake. So if we follow faithfully, we're going to draw fire, and you're going to suffering is part and parcel. Yeah? You said something else. I think said more two things, right? I've come that you may have life and have it housed. Abundantly. Abundantly. You said abundantly. So is that meaning in heaven abundance? I always thought it was on earth. But maybe it's not. Well, I, I think, you know, a... I think it means a life totally, not totally, but approximating God's will for you. And, you know, if, let me use an example. Some of you know and remember Lloyd Jean Williams, 
who was a cook here at the church for decades. She was one of my best friends, and she was uh, probably the, one of the greatest women of faith, except for Anne, my wife, that I've ever met. And Lloyd Jean, remember that comic strip, Little Abner? There was a character called Joe, and you can't pronounce his last name. It's like, and he has this black cloud that follows him around. That was Lloyd Jean. I would come to work, and I'd see her, I'd say, and I, or I'd hear about her house burned down. Her car was stolen. Her youngest son got put in prison. It was one thing after another, and I'd go to her, because I was a good pastor, to try to comfort her. And I'd always say, Lloyd Jean, how are you doing? Her response was always the same. I'm blessed. This was a woman going through tremendous suffering. She, I did her funeral just a couple months ago, and she spent the last six years of her life on dialysis, five days a week, six hours a shot. And yet, she never complained. She was a, had a smile on her face and a deep faith in Christ. She had that abundant life, even though, in one sense, it was an awful life in terms of the, as the world would look at it. But she had such a closeness to Christ. I think she'd say, I'm abundantly blessed. So I don't think it means just problem-free, but it's a, a life in fullness with Christ. Um, If I had a nickel for every person I visited in the hospital over 40 years who told me um, I never wanted cancer, but I'm so glad I got it because I was skimming along the surface. And this f has forced me into a deep relationship with Christ. And uh, I hear that over and over again. How tragedy. You know, when you go through suffering, you make a choice how you're going to let that affect you. You know, the old thing, it makes you bitter or better. I remember Reinhold Niebuhr telling a story in his book, Leave from the Notebook of a Tamed Cynic, about when he was a young pastor and he was visiting people in the hospital. And he said, I visited two ladies. One lady who had some agonizing disease. I mean, she was in deep pain. And yet she was joyful. She knew Christ. And then down the hall was another lady in the hospital for some non-life-threatening thing. And all she did was bellyache about how awful her situation was. And he came out at the end of the day and he said, you know, what's the difference? You know, here's one who should be uh, complaining and everything, and, and she's not. She's joyful in Christ, this other person. So, you know, we have to choose how we're going to allow suffering to. And that may sound rather glib, but I'm going to give you some clues how, to, how I've done that. Um, you know, I said Jesus basically promises three things. One is his presence. Who here has read the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Here's my theory of the theme underlying the whole epic. 
It's this, that you can make any journey if you have the right companions. Here you got these little hobbits. I mean, they're defenseless and they're not very smart and they're going up against all these wizards and everything else. But they have the right companions and they seem to be able to make it on the journey. Well, think of your life. You have the right companion with a capital C. Jesus says, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. And he also says, you know, you're one of my sheep. I've got you in my hand and nothing can snatch you from my hand. And he gives no wiggle room, not disease, not even death. So we're never not safe. Think about that. If you're in Christ's hand, if you're one of his sheep, nothing can get you out of there, even yourself. You're sealed and then you're never not safe. I could be killed in a car wreck on the way home from church today and you might go, oh, Ron wasn't safe. Don't believe it. Um, not, that can't snatch me out of Christ's hand. So he's with us always. So you got the right companion. Um, and then he says, you know, uh, I, I promise you eternal life. And you know, that, that is a life that doesn't begin at death. It begins when you accept Christ. It's a quality of life as Holy Spirit takes up a residence in your heart, and there's a quality there, and it's, but it's going to be nothing on this planet like it is when we're glorified one day in the unveiled glorious presence of Christ. But then also, I said he, he promises uh, suffering. Um, and, but here's the key that's helped me understand suffering and work through it because I can't explain it I can't give you all the answers why 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 but we have a God who did not spare himself from suffering the most amazing thing to me is when I as a pastor you get exposed to a lot of suffering in people's lives and I always walk away sometimes thinking golly I'm privy to what percent of the suffering in the world? Like 0.000% God is 100% aware of every bit of suffering in this world. Human suffering, animal suffering. And the amazing thing to me is, I keep saying, how much can you take? Why haven't you just brought this shooting match to an end and bring in your kingdom? Uh, so I pray that every day, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And uh, I pray that with fervency every day. Um, but here's Job. You know, he gets everything taken away from him. And uh, what about people in your life when they're suffering? Sometimes we're, we don't know what to do. Oftentimes we stay away from people who are suffering because we're afraid we'll say the wrong thing. I remember after our daughter died, our dear friends in this church, some of them said the most God-awful things. They meant well. <laughs> you know, the old, well, God must have needed, needed another little flower for his garden. You know, I was like, you know, I'll go to the <laughs> florist and get him a whole bouquet. Uh, I remember the trainer at Trinity University uh, who, you know, used to work on me when I played ball there. Levi Knock Knight, and uh, I used to still work out at Trinity, 
then, and he, I remember him come up to me. He didn't know what to say, but he loved me, and he, he hugged me, and he said, you'll get over it. <laughs> now, I knew what he meant. I, he meant well, otherwise I would have decked him. You know, you'll get over it? Now, this is not like a sprained ankle knock. Uh, the most helpful thing anybody ever said to me, it's going to sound counterintuitive to you, it was by Bob Bullock, who's a former pastor here, and he was retired. The day of our daughter's death, he came into our house. He came up to me, and he only said one thing. He put his arms around me, and he whispered in my ear from the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. That's all he said. He didn't explain it. That carried me through that day down to March 27, 2022. It had such of a ring of truth to it. And that, you know, I think, is the greatest, greatest statement of faith in the Bible. Because here's Job, he's lost everything. But though he slay me, yet will I praise him. I'm not going to turn my back. And here's the key, I believe, to making it through suffering. Is you've got to look at suffering, really the whole of life, the whole world, through the lens of the cross. Jesus goes to the cross. And we tend to think, oh, well, that's horrible. If you Google... JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, 1986 article on Christ's crucifixion. There's a great article. Do it. It could never be printed today, and I'm sure they wouldn't print it. Now, it'd be canceled. But these doctors go to great lengths to show exactly what happened to Jesus in a typical Roman crucifixion. When I was a little kid, you know, um, I used to be embarrassed for Jesus because it said that he couldn't carry his cross and they had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. Was Jesus a wimp? No. He was already beaten to about an inch from his death. That's why he couldn't do it. And this article goes into great detail to show how when it says he was flogged, do you know what that meant? doesn't mean they just you know, took a, a, a little whip and went... You know, they had these cat-of-nine-tails, leather thongs, and on the end of them were pieces of glass or jagged metal. And they would whip it around their body, and so it would go whoosh. Then they would pull. It was like a cheese grater, the most agonizing form of torture. And so Jesus went through tremendous suffering. But what if you put me through that and then put me up on a cross? That article doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the suffering Jesus went through. Because something happened on the cross at a cosmic level. Where Jesus, Paul sums it up in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. When he talks about Christ becoming sin for us. What does that mean? Here's the perfect sinless lamb of God. Actually became sin. What does that mean? I like to say I invented a theological word to explain that. Here's the word. You can write this down. But somehow, on a cosmic level, all of the sin of the universe was sucked into Christ. And I remember in this room, right here, Keith Miller was doing a Lenten talk on the 
uh, seven last words of Christ from the cross. And I remember he ended it by saying, he was standing right here. And he said, you know, there actually there was an eighth word. I'm sitting there, what? And he built this up and he started saying, do you all want to know what the eighth word is? Of course, everybody, and he kept building up and building up. And little old ladies were turning up their hearing aids and everything. And he, and he was just drawing us all in. He said, now I'm going to tell you what the last word, the eighth word was. He screams. I mean, people were flying out of their seats. Well, if you look at the scripture, it says Jesus cried out and gave up the ghost. So that was, it is finished. You know, what happened at a cosmic level on the cross? The amount of suffering we can't even begin to imagine. So that's why I say, as you and I go through suffering, look through the lens of the cross. We don't have an aloof God who doesn't know what we're going through. Um, Eli Weissel in his book, Night, Weissel was in a concentration camp. He was about 14 years old. He became a psychiatrist. He's Jewish. He's not a, a believer. Uh, he believes in God, but he doesn't believe in Christ. But he tells a story um, when uh, some prisoners did something wrong. And so the Germans thought, we'll make a spectacle out of them in front of the whole camp. So they had everybody lined up, and there were three of them, two grown men and a 12-year-old boy. And they hung them in front of the entire camp. They're all lined up like this. They had to watch these three get hanged. Now, the two men died almost instantly because they weighed pretty much, you know. But the 12-year-old boy didn't weigh much. And so he's, he's dangling around for minutes after that and Weissel said he's standing there watching this, and he hears somebody say in the ranks, where is God in all this? And then another voice says, he's hanging in that noose, flailing. When, you, when our daughter died, I went to the bottom. I, I'm, I'm not looking for sympathy, I'm just telling you the truth. I went to the bottom. But I learned two things. Number one, the bottom holds. And the second thing I learned was Christ was there. He was on the bottom with me. So when you and I go through suffering, it's not like God's watching us from far and, oh, give him a little encouragement here and there. No, he is in the midst of it. And he probably feels the pain more than you and I do. But he's given us his promise that he will not let us go. He will stay with us and walk the journey with us wherever it, it leads. That's the message of, of Scripture, and I think that's our only hope um, in the midst of a broken world. Let me stop here and see if anybody has any questions or comments. And... Um, I meant to get into the Job text in here, but sorry about that. They don't give us enough time here. So, sorry about that. I'm more of a preacher than a teacher. So, so. Yeah, Judy? Yeah, that's a great question. Why? Here's Job, and, and it says Satan's walking around the earth, and, and God says, hey, Satan, have you seen my 
servant Job, he's such a fine, upstanding guy. Satan says, oh, that's only because you blessed him. Take this stuff away from him, and he'll curse you. And the first question I have is, what is Satan, why does Satan even exist? And why doesn't God just wipe him out? The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says he's there, and he's out to try to devour you. And, uh, but the good news is Job makes clear that Satan is not in control. God is, and Satan's on a leash. God says, I'll let you touch his life, um, take everything away from him. Then I'll let you touch his body, and gives him, but you can't take his life. Now, poor Job, but he becomes the, the patron saint of how you and I are to navigate life. Because he doesn't, he, he complains, and the Psalms give you and me permission to lash out at God. After 9-11, I preached through the Psalms of Lament at Highland Park Press. That was the second most requested sermon series ever did. It was, it was a downer, but that's, we needed to hear that. And, and, uh, and, and David, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is Uzzah and the ark. They're bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and David's out in front dancing. And, you know, God said, nobody touches the ark. Not even the priests. They have to be on poles. You know, they can't. Nobody touches the ark. Okay. So the ark's on this ox cart, and the cart hits a rock, and tipping the, the ark is sliding off. And Uzzah, faithful Uzzah, puts his hand on the ark to keep it from falling off, and God strikes him dead. And David lashes out at God, you know, what's wrong with you? Give him hemorrhoids or something, but not kill him. God says, don't touch the ark. Now, I've got to hold that intention with John 3.16. Both are true. You know, reading through the Bible every year, you will get an ever more accurate picture of God. We want a domesticated, defanged, declawed God. You don't get that in Scripture. Um, you, get a, you get a very uh, angular God. I don't, I'm with David. Why don't you strike Uzzah dead? It's not fair. And yet it's the same God who says, yeah, but I love you enough that I went to a cross and went to literally hell and back to save you from hell. Okay, thank you. And as Jesus makes clear, when you come to Christ, God becomes not just creator, not even father, he becomes Abba. English translation, daddy. It's, there's an intimacy of love there, even amidst the suffering and brokenness that we go through. So again, I just have to look through the lens of the cross and say, okay, that's God's promise to me that he's in this with me. I wish he'd make it go away. I wish he had saved my daughter's life, but he didn't. But I've seen instances where he has miraculously saved somebody. Why doesn't he do that all the time? I want to control God. I want to tell him exactly what to do in every situation. And uh, I don't know about you, but if God answered every one of my prayers the way I've prayed them from the time I was little till now, my life would be one big mess. So um, all of this is a blip on the screen of eternity. 
as C.S. or the scriptures say, there awaits us a weight of glory that far outweighs anything we go through here. And C.S. Lewis has a great book by that title, The Weight of Glory. So we have to keep it in perspective, but it's hard to do when you're going through it. That's why the body of Christ needs to gather around those who are suffering. And Job's friends give us the perfect model of what to do and what not to do. They show up and it says they sat there for seven days not saying anything. If they had stopped there, they would go down in history as the greatest heroes in the Bible. But like all of us, they feel like, well, I've got to say something. So they try to start figuring it out. Well, Job, you must have done something wrong. And prosperity theology, you know, we all, our default mode is a transactional faith. You know, we think that God really is a kind of a celestial vending machine. If I put something in, I'll get something out. So if I say my prayers, go to church and give money, maybe I can die. I'll get the big Snickers bar of a nice life. The Christian faith is not transactional. It's grace. We don't deserve anything. We can't buy anything. We don't have enough to afford even a tiny blessing from God. But God in his magnanimous love, infinite love, unconditional love, looks at me and says, Ron Skate, you're a total mess. You deserve hell. But I'm going to save you anyway because I love you, despite who you are. And so um, I'm just glad I haven't suffered more than I have. I deserve nothing but suffering. Well, we're out of time, and I need to dismiss y'all. Let's pray, and then next week we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which is an enigma to most people. Fortunately, our men's uh, Thursday morning Bible study, we just finished Ecclesiastes. I learned a tremendous amount from guys like Don Test. Wasn't that a great time? I mean, we came out of that, like, in Paul. And um, so we'll, we'll talk about what is the strange book Ecclesiastes? Why is it in the Bible? And you'll see that, yeah, it should be. It's the inspired word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, um, you love us more than we can ever imagine. We're grateful for that. We think of all those going through suffering right now, Lord, that you would comfort them and carry them. We think of people in our own circle of friends or family that are going through suffering. May we be like Job's friends, just be there to support them. Help us to know when to keep our mouths shut. Um, but then, like Bob Bullock, if you lay a word upon us, may we speak it with confidence. And uh, Lord, remind us that uh, anything we've gone through, you've already gone through it, and, and, and nothing comes into our lives that hasn't already gone through your fingers, and nothing that's beyond your ability to redeem and somehow use it to shape us and to weave even our suffering into your plan, your eternal plan, not just for our lives, but for the entire universe. Um, so, Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.